This week's episode of The Vergecast is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard, multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, but today hiring can be easy and they have to go to one place to get it done, ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there with their powerful matching technology. ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day with results like that. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. Right now, Vergecast listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive Deeply surprising web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Verge. That is ZipRecruiter.com slash Verge, V-E-R-G-E. This episode of the Vergecast also brought to you by the Audi e-tron. The electric car has always raised questions. Can it contend with the elements? What's the range? With high-speed charging, low... Sorry, over. This episode of the Vergecast also brought to you by the Audi e-tron. The electric car has always raised questions. Can it contend with the elements? What's the range? With high-speed charging, long-range capabilities, and quattro all-wheel drive, the fully electric Audi e-tron could be the answer. Visit AudiUSA.com slash e-tron to learn more and stay informed. Hello, and welcome to the Vergecast, the flagship podcast of Paul Miller. <laughs> I'm sorry I'm late, Neil. <laughs> Paul, was, Paul was late to our recording I today. the flagship. You're not getting a 90-minute Vergecast today. No, we're going to be fine. Hi, Paul. Hey. I'm your, I'm your friend, Eli. Mm-hmm. This is Paul. Hello. The delinquent. <laughs> Dieter, tell the audience about your relationship with them. I'm, I'm, I'm your constant companion. I'm always there lurking. Yeah, he's your PDA. <laughs> your, your palm pilot, if you will. There's, there's kind of like a lot of weird and wacky stuff to talk about this week. A, a, a quiet week, generally. I want to start by just plugging a couple things. One, our new show, The Future of Music with Danny Deal, who is legitimately the coolest person who works at The Verge, uh, went up today. She's got Imaging Heap in VR, like volumetric VR. It's the first time in, like an artist has done that. So go watch that on YouTube. It's a cool show. We've got more episodes coming of that. Uh, Home of the Future with Grant Imhara continuing to uh, like go. Somebody tweeted at me and Dieter that like they were watching the episode and they started screaming vendor lock in at the at the screen. <laughs> and Grant was warmed my heart. <laughs> and I was like, yes, we've trained you all well. So go watch those two shows on YouTube. They are great. And then you might have noticed that we've been doing some interviews and segments and experimentation on the Vergecast. We're gonna start. We've gotten a lot of feedback. People love the interviews, but they just. They just want an hour of us goofing. So we're going to start working on like splitting out the interviews. So next week, I recently interviewed uh, the president and general counsel of Microsoft, Brad Smith, about what's going on online, how they're moderating their different services, Ooh. election interference, the whole thing. So next week, we're going to publish that as a standalone. And we're going to start publishing some standalone interviews as kind of a trial balloon. So just keep an eye out for that. I, I I know people like podcast listeners hate it when weird things happen in their feeds. Nothing should change. <laughs> yeah. And I, I get it, but the feedback we've gotten suggests that we need to split split the interviews out from the main show. So we're going to try it out. If it goes well in like September, we'll just like go for it and start doing it all the time. Mm. Um, so that's happening next week. I just I don't want listeners to be surprised when suddenly other stuff happens in the Vergecast feed, but I think it's going to work out. That interview we recorded it, it is great. He's great. Um, he's very illuminating. There's a little bit of news in there. I don't want to give it away. Mm. Some like wild stuff happened as they think about moderating all their services. But that, that'll happen next week. So just keep an eye out for it. Let me know what you think. I feel very confident that's the move, but if you feel differently, I, I want to know. All right. Let's start with the news. I just have this written down here as App Store Chaos. <laughs> that's like basically how I feel about it. The basics are we all understand how app stores work. Apple runs one. Google runs one. Google got slapped by the EU, so you have to disintermediate play services from Android. That's a big deal. 
right after that, we talked about in the show, uh, Epic Games pulled Fortnite off of the Google Play Store, said sideload it. This week, Netflix is testing a payment feature to bypass Apple's App Store. This is not quite the same thing. You don't still download the Netflix app from the App Store, but it's a subscription service. And previously, if you wanted to subscribe, you could just hit the button, and it would go through Apple's in-app billing, and you would just like subscribe to Netflix. Now that button is gone. But you would pay more if you did that, right? Well, yeah, yeah. I'll get to that in a sec. Yeah. Now that button's gone. Right. Netflix says, go to the web, sign up on the web, give us your credit card details there, come back, log in, you're good, watch Netflix. What Dieter's, Dieter's saying is correct. This is true for Netflix, for Spotify, for a number of other services. I did it for YouTube. I was just the world's laziest man. It's like, I know it's $10 on the web. I could pay thirteen dollars yeah. a month. I have YouTube Red. So, I feel bad. So Apple has a seventy thirty split for mm-hmm. every transaction that happens through it, its store, and so companies are smart. They just pass that cost on to you. So it's ten bucks a month for YouTube Red on the web. It's twelve ninety nine if you buy it in the YouTube app because it has to pass through Apple's uh, payment service. Companies are starting to like resent this. I think there's a lot of big questions about these app stores, whether or not they're like monopolies on these platforms, basically. Mm. Uh, ben Thompson today, a very smart analyst who writes Stratechery, wrote Apple has an Wait, absolute- what was that? He writes Stratechery. 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 Okay, sure. And it's got a line over Donnie. the E. I got it. Anyway, it's really good. If you don't subscribe to it, you should subscribe I'm to it. Clearly pay him out. directly so you don't have to pay the extra fee. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's, it's really good. He's really smart. Um, but he in his newsletter this morning, he wrote- Apple is an absolutely mon- absolute monopoly over app distribution on the iPhone, and they are nakedly, baldly charging rent, right? Like, they can just yes. do it. And I think a lot of developers are saying, what am I even getting for this money? Like, it's, I don't have a human contact at the App Store. I don't – the rules seem capricious. Mm-hmm. And that's – I mean, that's why I just wrote down App Store chaos. Like, this moment is here. Well, I just think of it from the user perspective. Like, what makes life easier as a user? And I know – for instance, every time that I flirt with buying a digital product, it's typically I land on Amazon and I'm going to maybe buy a Kindle book or maybe buy an Audible book. And Amazon, I'm just go through this crazy redirect carousel because an Amazon link in Safari wants to open the Amazon app. Mm-hmm. So the Amazon right. app launches and then the Amazon app's like, oh no, <laughs> he wants a digital <laughs> product. So then it bumps me back to the web so I can buy it on the web. It's just it's just bad user experience and it's confusing. My question is how can Netflix, can they put a link, because I feel like part of Amazon's thing is they can't even link directly to their store. Where Neither you can, can Netflix. So they just have to say, hey, we've heard about this thing called a web browser. Yeah. Why don't you see what happens if you type, I mean, type I in Netflix.com? <laughs> if you need to sign up for Netflix, visit Netflix.com. I mean, it's not. They're Netflix. How many people left have to sign up for Netflix? No, but it's it's gross in the sense of that that possibly you know work this side loading thing works for Epic. This, yeah. This this web browser thing might work out for Netflix. Well, so I saw Walt and Steven Snofsky tweeting today, and Steven Snofsky, who used to run Windows, knows who he's talking about in this industry, was like, "Look, every distributor and every supplier, they're always at war. Walmart versus Procter and Gamble was a war, and that's like." a thing you have to manage. And Walt pointed out, when Apple introduced the App Store, and he said, I'm only taking 30%, people like applauded because previous to App Stores, developers had to pay Verizon to get weird, bad apps preloaded on feature phones. 
I or think, I think that's just, a good point. Uh, but we're ten years away from that now. Previously to the App Store, if you wanted to get an app on a phone, you went to the web. <laughs> and no, I'm, there is a genuine question of what does the App Store provide to developers? It provides some level of promotion. It provides like payment stuff. Uh, it provides users the ability to have like a single place where all their subscriptions might be. Um, but I think most of all, the number one thing it provides is trust. Mm -hmm. If I install an app from this store, I know it's coming from this store. It's not coming from some weird malware redirect. You know, when you, back in the day, if you went to go download an app on your computer, you know, you'd end up at, I don't know, downloads.com or, you know, max something, something or this other thing. And then you're like, okay, well, where's the download button? I can't find it amongst all these ads. I got to make sure I click the real one and not the fake one that's going to take me someplace else. And you'd look, look for a developer and it was like, it was a mess. And so if your brand is big enough that you can solve some of those problems without needing Apple, why wouldn't you? Or Google, in, in this case. The thing that's different with the iPhone is they do, in fact, hold a monopoly. You cannot install an app on the iPhone without going through the App Store full stop. Um, oh, wait, but wait, just for all the people who just screamed actually in their cars, because they yeah, did, fair. Okay. you can. If you run a big business or you're a developer, yeah. there are ways to... Right, but the normal person who buys an iPhone has right. no recourse to install an app on their own. So the the reason it it has it one we we know that Apple makes money on it. It's not net zero for them. And two, thirty percent just seems high. It is the case that if you do a subscription, it goes down to fifteen percent after the second year, and that's a very interesting incentive. It sort of seems like Apple saw this coming a couple of years ago, right? But I don't know, like absent an app store. Uh, the web created app stores for other platforms. There was a really great site that you could trust called Palm Gear that d had provided almost all of the same services uh, that you get out of uh, an app store. Uh, there, the Mac had a Corellia, which was a sort of a mm -hmm. clearinghouse for stuff. Like these things are possible to create, um, but it having it be official from the company and knowing that they have an infrastructure of, you know, robots and people that are checking for malware and quality and whatnot is a genuine service. The The question is, is it worth 30%? And then the second question is, if you don't need those services, do you have recourse to something? And so Netflix is in the enviable position of not needing that stuff. And they also are in the enviable position of having another way to like get money from people but wait no Netflix um, it's important i think to distinguish Netflix from Fortnite Netflix yeah. is still putting its app in the store right i think that's a key element right. here they're not shipping a binary to you they're just opting well, so, out of so if we're talking iPhone so is Fortnite right because they don't have a choice but yeah. just to be clear like Netflix all the trust all the malware checking whatever they're just bypassing the payment service because they right. get no, they get literally nothing for that thirty percent cut. Yeah, they just right. pass it directly to the consumer, and you know Apple takes some money and Netflix gets nothing. So like, why not just lower your price and say sign up over, give us your credit card number over here, and then your experience in this app is going to be almost exactly the same. The can but I Fortnite on Android is shipping you a binary, which I think is really really different. Because that's yeah. what gets to what you're talking about, Dieter, which is, are there alternative ways to get code onto your phone? And that opens just a vast number of questions. Can I make a bit of a tangent? This is a story we haven't really covered. Yeah. But, you know, Discord is launching a Steam competitor. So the Windows, one beautiful thing about the Windows ecosystem is there's lots of stores. 
Uh, Steam is the most popular one. Steam was trying to get all Discordy and added voice chat. <laughs> and Discord, I don't know if they had this in their pocket. I'm sure they had to be playing this for a while. But Discord's uh, Paul, like, you, missed a, you, you missed your shot. You could have said Discord's getting real steamy. Ooh. Discord is getting real steamy. <laughs> they have they're launching a game store, and there are a lot of value adds that, uh, especially on on a PC, that you sort of like you're managing updates for people. You're managing sort of like the reputation system for the different publishers and like r- ratings, and and there's also the online presence aspect. Like I Game Center is basically a lag to launching. A game on an iPhone. <laughs> That's about all it is. I would, I, you know, I, I know Apple doesn't want this at all, but I would love alternative stores on on the, on the iPhone. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where it's fun. If Apple Store was better or offered more flexible pricing or more options for developers to sell upgrades or all of the things developers have been talking about, I don't think you would see this sort of agita from that community about how Apple treats them. And it's it's just there and it's real. And I, of course Apple isn't offering that stuff because they don't have to. They're just the, they're the only choice. So if they had yeah. some competition, yeah. maybe they would like change their policy. I in all, I think the App Store has been a, a huge boon to everyone, right? Like well, developers have distribution I mean, they never had before. Consumers are getting more apps. There's just more activity, but what has it done? It's inexorably lowered prices to almost zero. Consumers are overwhelmed. And we all forgot how to use the web. Yeah, everyone, no one knows how to use a computer anymore. That seems like, you know, the, the, the comparison between Walmart and Procter and & Gamble is like, what could Procter & Gamble do? They could like go to Target, right? They could go to Amazon. They have, they have these other distribution options. And particularly on the iPhone, they don't. And I think what we're seeing with Google is this huge amount of interest in other distribution options. Um, so Fortnite, you know, Samsung's exclusive was... You could get it on the Samsung App Store, <laughs> which is not particularly exciting. But the idea that Samsung has this App Store and they're going to buy exclusives and sort of claw their way into relevance is somewhat interesting. Mm-hmm. Dieter, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to point out, as long as we're talking about pure monopoly on the iPhone, um, there is this idea out there. I don't really know if I'd buy into it, but that one of the reasons Apple chose not to ban the InfoWars app was because it would make very clear to everybody what a pure monopoly they have on the app store, whereas with you know podcasts, you can you can still get a podcast you know other in uh, via other means via other apps via you know knowing how RSS works or whatever. Um, I've heard this conspiracy theory. Yeah, who didn't know that? Who who is is there anyone like is there one senator who's like oh, I can't get Infowars? I better look are into you, whether there's an alternative source of apps on the iPhone. Are you suggesting that senators might not be like tech savvy? I don't know what I'm suggesting. Like, I, okay. <laughs> another part of this this whole free speech debate is is like, oh, you don't like Twitter, leave Twitter. Apple has kept gab.ai off of the App Store mm-hmm. for yeah. offensive content, quote unquote, which is it's kind of weird cuz you have a web browser on your platform. I mean, we talked about this from the very beginning. Apple used to ban porn apps, and we'd be like, yo, <laughs> Safari, <laughs> is, you can go to Tumblr.com anytime you want. <laughs> I mean, I think they, but that's, they want that. I think they're actually okay with that. I think they know this is Apple's space for our values, our curated, quote-unquote, curated selection, because it's massive. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. the web is the open space. 
And I think they're very comfortable with that distinction inside of Apple. The question is whether anybody else understands that distinction, whether that distinction is important, whether in the face of regulatory scrutiny that distinction even means anything. Those are wide open questions. I have no idea. But I think that's the distinction they've certainly made. But okay, so step back from, I, I shouldn't have opened this Pandora's box, but step back from like giant like regulation questions uh, and just look at who else has the opportunity or the, the, the wherewithal to do an end around of either uh, Apple's App Store pricing or Google Store entirely? Because the going assumption right now is if you're Epic or if you're Netflix, yeah, go for it. You're, you're big enough. You've got your own brand. You've got your own direct customer relationships. Like You could totally pull that off. Um, but like who else? Spotify. I don't know, Immediately like, leaves Spotify. Leaves yep. to mind. Uh, Google, New York Times, like has got a mixed model. Actually, you can subscribe on the web, and then well, it works had, in the. Well, they app. all had mixed models, right? Every yeah. all of these companies had Spotify for years has been like sign up on the web, like don't do this, yeah. but we have to do it. So yeah, I think the Times, the Post could do it. Uh, Amazon bizarrely could do it, right? Like, well, Amazon's doing some crazy shit on Android, right? They, I, I think they finally are getting rid of that Netflix or that Amazon Underground app that they had, the the Underground App Store for Google. <laughs> Remember that? Yes. Oh God. I mean, I think there's an endless list of these services now. It, the The point I was making earlier about it being ten years later is this ecosystem is fully developed. It's mature. The companies that have come up as companies who built software for the phone are now as big or bigger than the platforms themselves. They have options, and I, th- there's no reason they wouldn't use them. I think the question is just how will Apple and Google react? And I think they're in vastly different positions because yeah. Google has is required by the European Union to unbundle play services in the store from Android. So like, whatever is going to happen on Android is going to be drastic and I think Apple will probably, being Apple, will probably be more conservative. But the pressure is definitely there from these businesses that, after a decade of shipping mobile software, are now deeply aware that they have their own customers, their own customer relationships. Like if Spotify tomorrow is like, "Hey, sorry, we're canceling your iOS in-app payment membership. Go sign up on the web. By the way, it'll be three dollars cheaper." Is anyone going to get mad at them? No, but I think that Spotify actually has. Uh, different incentives. I think that Spotify is in a customer acquisition race with Apple, and Apple's doing really well with Apple Music on the iPhone relative to Spotify, especially in the U.S. And so, I think it's a, a lot riskier for Spotify to try and take a hard line on this than um, than people realize. They're sure. not they're popular, but they're not like dominant. All right, we got to take a break. This is going to be a weird ad. I want you to know what's going to yeah. happen. We're gonna there's going to be MythBuster on the show, but it's it's like sponsored. So Carrie Byron, famous MythBuster, is now going to do an Audi ad. Go on this adventure with Carrie Byron. Hi, my name is Carrie Byron. I'm a former MythBuster, so I'm always very curious about new technology. Today, we're going to take a peek into the future, the future of the American highway. It could be filled with electric vehicles supported by an ecosystem of technology, like super fast charging stations. Right now, the future is being built by people like Jonathan Levy at EVGo, the nation's largest network of fast charging EV stations. All right, Jonathan, let's start at the beginning the charge. Now, EV charging stations, are they going to be available everywhere? Yes, because we want to integrate charging into people's everyday lives. And that means putting the chargers where people need them, whether it's in metro grocery stores and other things, or just off the highway, or sometimes a combination of that. How quickly will we be able to charge an EV from zero to 100? 
today, the typical EV can get to 80% using a fast charger in about 20 or 30 minutes. And a lot of people are starting to think about 350 kilowatt charges to be able to do things in about five to 10 minutes. And uh, tell me about these charging corridors. Um, what does it look like when it all comes together? Yeah, so I mean, ideally you have a mix, right? Where you have some things that are just off the highway, just like a regular old rest stop. Some of them are a mile or half a mile off so that you can still pull into a strip mall, grab a sandwich and, and let the car charge while you're doing that. We wanna have both. And so there's a big concerted effort to make sure that we're pushing the envelope and putting fast chargers out there that can work for all sorts of people, whether it's their road trip or just their day-to-day -day life, or if it's a rideshare driver that's taking people to and from the airport. To learn more about going electric with Audi, check out AudiUSA.com slash e-tron. That's AudiUSA.com slash E-T-R-O-N. Well, thank you again to Audi e-tron. Thank you to Carrie. Okay, there's big NVIDIA news, RTX 2000. Know, here's a great segue. Did you know you can ray trace a car? <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> All right, Paul. <laughs> T tell me about these GPUs. Remember when the next, next gen came out, like the PS4, Xbox One? Yeah. And everybody, you know, more power, graphics are going to get better. But there was no, like, thing that you could just point to, like, that makes it next gen. And then they kind of, like, mid-gen went, like, 4K. I feel like we have now seen next gen. And it is real-time ray tracing. And so, what was it, a week or so ago, NVIDIA released, like, the workstation version, their Quadro... Um, is it Quadro or Quattro? Quattro. They're workstation cards. And uh, like uh, going up to like- Quadro. Quadro. Okay, thank you. I was thinking about the Audi. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you win, Audi. Um, they, like the cards go up to like $10,000. Like the, the die size is like enormous. It's like the second biggest chip ever made. And I remember there, like even just a couple of weeks ago, there was speculation, oh, like- NVIDIA is like holding back on consumer cards. Consumer cards are kind of like no win for them right now because they're still leading mm -hmm. with their, their 10 series and uh, AMD is not catching up and people just buy all the car, like all the new cards for, for cryptocurrency and then sell, resell them later. And <laughs> it's just like a, a busted market right now. No reason for them to release a consumer card. And then they released <laughs> the, the 20 series. Which is amazing. So it does real-time ray tracing. So the basics of real-time ray tracing. I just didn't th see this coming. So this is really exciting. So this is something, I, th I believe it was Pixar that was doing it first. But basically, if, have you ever seen a, a, like a, a, a ray trace image in progress? Yeah. It looks like a really low IS, uh, a high ISO image, like really, really grainy. And it slowly fills in over time and it gets clearer and clearer and smoother and smoother. So now there is a, uh, a neural network-based denoising algorithm that can take a noisy ray-traced image and fill it in so that it looks just like fully rendered. So you're saving a ton of time because you're taking, instead of taking like the hundredth pass of a ray trace, you can take like the first or second or something like that. So that's big boost number one. The other big boost and the way that NVIDIA is applying this to like games that we will actually play is that you'll still have rasterization. So t the, the way games are typically rendered, that will happen. And then ray tracing is basically being added on top to do the lighting in real time. And everything I've seen that they've demoed so far looks beautiful. It's just an obvious leap forward. So you're going to get better, like typically like 
depth of field effects, bloom effects, stuff like that. A lot of that stuff typically is done with the CPU right now. So that can be done in in engine with actual like light rays, well simulated. You can have refraction, you can have reflection. It's just it's gonna and you can have cooler shadows where you tilt the light and this the is shadow one of those does things for like, wobbly things. I love it when new hardware comes out and gamers are like, we can get cooler shadows, and then yeah. like it settles in and they care about games again. And that pendulum just always swings back and forth. Like I will buy any game just to be like, check out check out that 4K. Real-time global illumination. <laughs> Imagine it. That sounds, like, that sounds like your conspiracy theory YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, globally illuminating in real time. <laughs> so here's what I don't quite understand about NVIDIA's like, pricing model. Mm-hmm. They don't actually make consumer products, right? They like, farm them out to ASUS and EVGA. But they set the prices... So the RTX 2070 starts at 499. Uh, the 2080 is at 699. 2080 titanium is $1,000. Then there's Founders Editions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, what's with the Founders Editions? I think you get a sticker. You get 599, <laughs> $799, and $1,200, right? But they're setting the prices for their third party vendors. How does this work? No, they typically set basically like a base price, like yeah. a stock price. Here's what the stock model is. And then vendors can can try to like basically lose money mm-hmm. and, and undercut that price. But more typically, like they'll have a stock version and then like this one's liquid cooled and this one is overclocked. And so vendors can like make – but they've been setting prices like this for a while. Yeah, I just – I'm not in this market. And I, I'm like just looking at – like you can buy it from Asus, EVGA, Gigabyte, MSI, PNY, or Zotac. How how would anybody make a decision about which one to buy? It's just your favorite. <laughs> is that just the Whichever answer? Whichever one hasn't sold out their entire inventory to cryptocurrency miners, I think, is the answer. Uh, also that. <laughs> I don't know. I, I bought an Asus motherboard, and so I was like buying my video card, and it's like, oh, this Asus <laughs> 1070 is the same color. Eric, I'm going to vertically integrate my desktop PC. But you want a brand that you could you know, relatively trust, that you trust yeah. that they're going to do a good job cooling it. And Are these good for cryptocurrency mining? Can you ray trace? I don't know that. I don't. (laughs) I don't know if that's a phrase. So, Nvidia is doing some. This is something I've been like thinking or talking a lot about. I'm not trying to say that I like predicted real time ray tracing, but most of the gains that we're seeing in computer performance, full stop, across our phones, desktops, servers, is through like very application specific. I mean, that's what is mining most of the Bitcoin now is ASICs. Like, yeah. Chips that are specifically yeah. designed for a purpose. These are chips that are very specifically designed for NVIDIA algorithms. You know, they've worked with Microsoft. They've worked with the Unreal Unreal Engine to to allow developers to use this pretty easily. But you're basically I mean, NVIDIA, NVIDIA is more and more. It's like um, it's like being an app, uh, like an iOS developer. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to use Apple's SDK and APIs and make an Apple-like thing, and so. You have like there's there's this um, I forget what the acronym is, but there's this specific algorithm for basically chopping space into little chunks so that when you're doing ray tracing, you don't have to go everywhere. You can kind of just focus on one little spot, and that's specifically accelerated by Nvidia. Yeah. So like they, it, and obviously this this uh, uh, neural network that does fills in the noise that's specifically accelerated. So. They do have like a, a, a t- TPU tensor processing or 
It's a tensor unit. Yeah. It's just called tensor. Well, but because Google's chips are called TPUs. They're, they're tensor flow yeah. processing units. So anyways. Google has a flow. <laughs> NVIDIA does rate these on, um, especially their workstation cards, on on like AI workloads or neural network networks. TensorFlow net workloads, basically. Mm-hmm. This so, sounds like the sort of so, thing you usually hate. I just want to put this out there. You're what? so excited about ray tracing that your general hatred of proprietary like API calls and SDKs is, is like out the window. Yeah, because I'm very <laughs> excited about. Well, no, th- so this is this is part of my whole, this is my whole my whole th- vision of how I believe the world works. You start with a walled garden. Mm-hmm. You tend the garden, mm-hmm. and then you tear down the walls. Yeah, and this is hmm. definitely the walled garden section. Mm-hmm. That 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 Nvidia is out in the garden with a little watering can, hoping. Yeah. And where can where can the listener subscribe to Global Point Source Illumination? <laughs> <laughs> what 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 was the phrase? Global real time global illumination. Yeah, it's Paul's available on YouTube now. Uh, you can pay three dollars extra. But I mean, have you guys seen these videos? It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. no, it is. I watched all the videos today. They're incredible. I think it's just one of those things where it's what you're saying. It's like it's very limited to like Nvidia's view of the world, mm. and they just seem to be really far ahead. And that's fascinating to me because they, it's you know, like the Xbox is on AMD chips, Apple is on AMD chips. PS, it's like they're just like off pushing these incredibly high horsepower desktop PC experiences. Mm. And it's it's fascinating to me that the sort of rest of the industry can't find a way to work with NVIDIA better. I mean... Maybe they're, um, I don't know, like, what is this thing? What was the power draw? I tweeted this. It's like, it's like 215 watts. It's like insane. It's insane. It's just <laughs> it's completely insane. <laughs> yeah. What do you want? Slow time ray tracing? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, the, the, the other thing, uh, my hope is that because... They're accelerating more workloads, and yes, there some of these are very specific to specific algorithms. Hopefully, that horsepower will be available, and developers will figure out how to use it mm-hmm. for tasks that are beyond just ray tracing. So, hopefully, we'll find other things in our lives that will be accelerated by this. But you know, obviously, launching a gaming card, you're going to emphasize the gaming application. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think Nvidia is just so far ahead. It's it's like what you said. They they didn't have to, yeah, and they just like did it, and now everyone else is kind of way behind. And I think it's deeply fascinating that all of that effort is localized into one corner of computing when all the other things we talk about tend to run these wacky AMD processors. Well, and, the, and there isn't it's something kind of thrilling about that. It, it's it's like if if NVIDIA came out and like we have solved messaging. <laughs> and they launched a, a proprietary hardware accelerated oh messaging platform. That would be hell. Now it's but coming. If they're, it's, it's, now that you said it, it's real. If they're hunkered down developing the future of graphics, I'm, I'm going to love it every time. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of which, uh, I just want to do some camera news real fast and then go into the next thing. Mavic 2. DJ had an event today, Thursday. Uh, Mavic 2 came out. Mavic 2 Pro. Mavic to Zoom, both have Hasselblad cameras. They look great, and they're also apparently very quiet. Yeah. 
Which makes I me was happy. all set to be like salty about that there's two versions and why don't they just find a way to put, you know, something modular in there so you don't have to pick between the two different things and why, you know, it's like you're you're buying the camera and then you're stuck buying this stupid drone that's attached to it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is a weird way to put it, but you know what I mean. Um, but I don't know, I, like actually looking at what they've done and looking at the decisions they made and, and looking, you know, the, there's the bigger sense around the two. I don't know, I'm actually weirdly hyped for these things. Yeah, I really actually want to buy I'm trying to sell... My Phantom Four. It's not going great because newer, better drones are available. So I'm trying. I'm like trying to get rid of it because I want one of these very badly. But then I'm like, what do I need this for? And I realize I should just get a Spark. But you look at these yeah, specs. But then also look at the footage that Viren shot in Iceland. Yeah. Uh, at the bottom of that post, it's just like, oh, I want that. Yeah, I want this a lot. I mean, they're expensive. It's like what twelve hundred and fourteen hundred dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Mavic Two Pro. Is 1449 and the zoom is 1249. This Hasselblad camera. Yeah. I think it's real. I don't think it's yeah, a sticker. How do you think Hasselblad helped improve? Because just to be clear, these drones are not carrying a five. <laughs> yeah, to they're ten. not carrying a medium format. <laughs> <laughs> well, so DJ owns a huge chunk of Hasselblad. Right. So I'm assuming. Well, obviously they have the rights to <laughs> use the logo. I don't know. I think that's like a really interesting question. But I think. They probably did more than just put a sticker on it. I think there's probably some sensor integration there, right? I mean, they bought a big fancy camera company. Yeah, you assume that their camera engineers at DJI were like, "Hey, can we talk to them?" And they're like, "Stickers only." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's exactly how I think it went down. <laughs> Hasselblad folks like, "No, only stickers." Welcome to our waiting room. There are T-shirts for everyone. No, I think they. I think they actually did some stuff. I think they're never going to really tell us, but DJI has been so far ahead anyway. Yeah, but I think getting that, I think the Hasselblad stuff was more about their pro line, right? Like the Inspire, yeah. like they want to put that logo on the big film drones. Mm-hmm. They can put them on the Mavic yeah. too. Why not? But I mean, the 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 thing that I love about what we're talking about, like going from Nvidia to this, is like here are two companies that are so far ahead of everybody else in what they do, and there's like ancillary or related, you know, product categories and whatever. There's AMD for Nvidia. There's I don't know, unique for DJI. But either one of these companies could just coast for a while, and it seems like they're not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely great. not. The Mavic also, the Mavic 2 uh, has insane obstacle avoidance. So you just like set it to fly, and it can go around things and above and below things. The video they put out to demonstrate this was like, definitely seems like it was flying through the Death Star, which I don't know is like a regular <laughs> occurrence for most people. But as somebody who has crashed a drone, I certainly yeah. appreciate it. So you're saying Luke Skywalker and... Han Solo are obsolete. Yeah. Their skill set is... They've been replaced by a robot with a zooming camera that says Hasselblad on it. Okay. Also, I don't really know why you need to zoom with a drone, because you can just fly the drone. (laughs) (laughs) I've been thinking about this a lot. No, you do that... that, What what's that that cool zoom that you do where you're moving the camera one way, but you're zooming the other way, and it's really disorienting? You do that. I think of that as the Rondo zoom. Yeah. Yeah, Rondo Uh. was one of our old video directors. Okay. Other camera news... New LX100 from Panasonic with touch screen new sensor. And then Nikon just released its full-frame mirrorless stuff. The Nikon stuff, they it really feels like they missed a trick, yep. right? Like, what do people think of when they think of, like, mirrorless cameras? They think smaller, easier to handle. So Nikon put out, like, a full-size DSLR body, D7, <laughs> Z7, and Z6. I keep getting it wrong. They're huge. The lenses look nice. You can get an adapter for the typical Nikon F-mount lens. I just don't know where they're going with this one. Here's what I think happened. Nikon, a decade ago, was like, hey, 
Uh, these smaller cameras are coming. Eventually, we're going to need to get rid of the the lens, or not the lens, the mirror. We should get ready. We should we should like have be ready to make cool small cameras. Well, it was a decade ago. Like, well, well, how do we how do we do that? And somebody said, I know. Let's bring Ashton Kutcher in, and we'll make something called Cool Picks. And then <laughs> it was such a traumatic experience having to work with him that Nikon has decided they're out of that game and they're only going to make big-ass cameras for the rest of their company because that's just where they live. Can yeah. I just point out that the um, the adapter to use the regular lenses is called FTZ, F2Z. <laughs> Like no. whatever, whatever Nikon yes. product manager came out with Maybe that. Maybe Ashton Kutcher still lurking. <laughs> okay, okay. But here's the thing. One advantage mm-hmm. of mirrorless cameras is the small size. Yeah. But there are other reasons that people gravitate towards them. Mm-hmm. And what annoying thing about Sony's cameras is they have these tiny little batteries that <laughs> run yes. out in like 15 minutes. And so you have to like – to have a – an effective professional Sony kit, you basically have to have like eight batteries with you um, and then like a dual charger. So you got two batteries charging, you know. So I, I, I don't know how these cameras will actually operate. But yeah. especially, you know, if you're if you're actually professional, the, the lens size is going to dominate unless you've got like a pancake lens or something. So I don't know. I feel like there's definitely room for a bulkier uh, – Full frame mirrorless camera if it's actually good, but and I hope it's good. And also they're doing this crazy lens, the Noct lens, fifty eight millimeter f stop zero point nine five. Yeah, fastest glass in Nikon's history. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. I'm excited. Like, I'm a Nikon person. Right. I can't believe I just bought a Nikon DSLR. That seems dumb in retrospect. <laughs> but, you know, I'm excited. I just think as a com- these are going up against a Sony a7 III and a7R III, and people love those cameras in a way that I'm not sure Nikon can roll in with kind of late to the party. I'm excited for them to do it. I think Sony needs to the competition. Yes. Competi- again, the only theme of our show <laughs> is please, competitors, emerge. Anyway, I'm excited about it. It's cool. And then I mentioned the LX100. Speaking of Sony, I think the RX106 is it. We uh, we just reviewed it. Uh, Becca, yeah. our, our video director, did an amazing video review on our YouTube channel. You should go check that out. And Stefan wrote the review on the site. The six is one of those cameras. The, the Mark Six. Everyone who wants to buy it talks to me about buying an older one instead. They talk yep. about buying the five, or they talk about buying the four because they're cheaper. They're virtually the same. People love the LX100. I think it, that class of cameras, honestly, the upgrade from your phone camera to that is just staggering. And I, I've said it on our show like a thousand times now. I, we take so many awesome photos of the baby, and I love them all. She's really cute. And the second I like go to look at one closely, I'm like, oh, this photo actually sucks. Mm. Like, I don't feel that way about the RX100. So I'm, ex- I'm, I'm going to end up buying a camera. I'm going to buy a drone and a camera. This segment was stuff Neil is going to buy. <laughs> microphone jack. I That's don't... true. That's true. Yeah. Uh, does the LX100 have a microphone jack? No, mm. you wouldn't want to shoot video on the thing anyway. The yeah, LX100 does the have a, a cool thing that uh, Nikon started doing. It has continuous uh, Bluetooth low energy transfers to your smartphone. So as you yeah. shoot, it transfers automatically, which Sony's Play Memories does not do yet. That makes me happy. All right, I'm gonna read this ad. But if you have a an Android phone, you can NFC tap it to send it one right away, which is really convenient. Yeah, just saying. that's just Dieter out there. Do you have like a move where you like take a photo and like click your phone real fast and like take another photo? Like, 
No, I just I take photos. I review the stuff I took, and then I take find the one I want, and I tap it to my phone, and then I post it to Instagram. Hmm. I was hoping that you had some sort of elaborate dance that you did as you took photos. No, I'm sorry. But, Dieter, do you ever need to send money internationally? <laughs> I want to warn you yes. against using your bank. Or PayPal. By the way, this episode of the Richcast is brought to you by TransferWise. Sure, they get your money from A to B, but that transfer costs you more than it should. A lot more. It's the old way. Let me tell you about the new, smarter, and cheaper way to spend money internationally, TransferWise. TransferWise, founded by two friends, Tevet and Christo, were frustrated by the bank's bad exchange rate and high fees, and they wondered... What if we could bypass the banks entirely? So they built TransferWise. That was seven years ago. Today, more than two million people use TransferWise. People sending money home, business paying suppliers, freelancers getting paid, the list goes on. TransferWise's clever new technology gives you a great exchange rate and a low fee, so it'll put some extra money in your pocket for the more important things. Because no one has ever said, it's important that my bank get some extra money. Test out for free at TransferWise.com slash podcast or download the app. Once again, that's TransferWise.com slash podcast. It's the wise way to send money. All right, here's Liz with This Week in Elon. Hello and welcome to This Week in Elon. I'm Elizabeth Lopato, the deputy editor at The Verge. We're doing something a little different this week. We're going to be creating a newsletter, This Week in Elon. You'll find subscription links at theverge.com. You should definitely sign up. And I am just going to just go through it, okay? So about 12 hours after I recorded last week's This Week in Elon, the New York Times published an interview with Elon. So, you know, last week was immediately out of date. Anyway, uh, there's a bunch of stuff in there that's interesting, but one of the things that interests me the most is that the board is looking for a second command for Elon, which makes total sense because you read the interview and he's like, well, you know, I've been working 120 hours a week. Sometimes I sleep at the factory. Sometimes I don't really sleep at all. I mean, that does not seem sustainable to me. And Elon has has a great track record of picking successful number twos. I'm thinking specifically of SpaceX's Gwen Shotwell, who has been incredible for that company and who also has taken a lot of pressure off of him and made him freedom up to spend more time with Tesla. So if you could find a Gwen Shotwell for Tesla, um, that might potentially make things a lot better. Because I know when I'm working like that, I don't work 120 hours a week. (laughs) But there are definitely weeks where I'm working more than I should. Um, I get short-tempered, I get snappy, I'm not my best self, I make sloppy mistakes. And Elon being human, I suspect the same is true of him. So having somebody to take the pressure off and run the organization so that he can take a vacation that's longer than a week seems like it's probably a good thing. Speaking of SpaceX, NASA has finally approved SpaceX's plan to load propellants onto its rockets while there are astronauts on board, which some aerospace experts think is risky. But the reason why it's been approved is that SpaceX has to demonstrate the fueling method at least five times on the Block 5 Falcon 9 rocket before the process is certified for people. So that's that's exciting for SpaceX. And now we're going to go back to Tesla drama because there's been a lot of it. So you may remember Elon Musk tweeted about taking Tesla private. He was thinking about taking Tesla private at 420 a share, uh, blaze it, and pretty much all hell broke loose. Well, anyway, uh, Goldman Sachs has confirmed they're involved. Morgan Stanley has dropped coverage of Tesla. So that's, quote, spurred speculation they could be playing a role in taking the privatization forward, according to Bloomberg News. And while we're talking banks, it's perhaps worth mentioning that JP Morgan is feeling pretty spicy and is predicting a Tesla stock plunge because funding was, quote, not secured. So they're price target for Tesla shares is $195, which is a lot less than 420 and also not a very fun number. 
couple of other things going on. Uh, ARK Invest, uh, one of Tesla's biggest investors, has published an open letter saying they don't want Tesla to go private, that they think that it's actually better for Tesla to be in the public markets. They think it's going to be better for the company. They firmly believe in the company. So there's that. Those are your bulls and bears, my friends. And then, meanwhile, there are a couple of other smaller things going on. Wall Street Journal is reporting that some Tesla parts suppliers are nervous they won't get paid. Business Insider is reporting that um, Tesla is still having some manufacturing problems. And they surveyed 12 customers who say they got flawed cars. And some of those folks say that getting fixes wasn't easy. I will just note that 12 is not a huge number. One other thing, uh, the Azealia Banks thing is still happening and I still don't know what to make of it. I'm just going to say the whole thing gives me a really severe case of secondhand embarrassment. And I don't think I'm the only one who's embarrassed because Grimes and Elon Musk have unfollowed each other on Instagram and Twitter. And then later, Elon Musk deleted his Instagram account. I don't know what to make of that. Uh, I don't know if they're unfollowing each other because they just want to keep a low profile or if they have in fact broken up. But uh, social media, none of us should be using it. That's This Week in Elon. I'm Elizabeth Lopato. Thank you so much for listening, and you should subscribe to our newsletter. Okay, I feel like we need to talk about these Apple rumors. Yeah, it's a lot. So Apple's coming up. September is looming, Mm -hmm. as September often does. (laughs) That's a real (laughs) counting crow song. All right. September's looming. We're expecting a new iPhone event, because that's what always happens. And so now this little baby flood of leaks is coming. So Mark mm-hmm. Gurman at Bloomberg says, MacBook Air replacement with a retina display and a new Mac Mini targeted at pros. I don't know if we're going to get that in September. That you might don't? be an October thing. Yeah, it really feels like they're going to have two events. Like we're expecting three iPhones, and, they're probably gonna, and we're probably also expecting the Apple Watch with a bigger screen. I don't know how they fit that in. There's also like the new iPad Pro in the wings and Mac. Like they're gonna, they're, There's no way they try and do all that stuff in a single event. Yeah, I'm with you. Right? Yeah, I can see them doing three products in one event, but not five. That seems like an awful lot. Although sometimes they just, like, do it, you know? Mm. Like, every now and again, they're just like, here's all of the things. I'd have to physically see a Mac Mini in an Apple store to believe Apple is launching a Mac Mini. (laughs) Well, so the report says they understand what people use Mac Minis for, which is, like, (laughs) server co-location. There's one. This is my favorite one. Home theater usage. Uh Because uh, mm-hmm. the HTPC market still beating along, so you can see that's like a processor bump situation. They don't need to do a lot, mm-hmm. and they are bad at bumping processors. Right. So they bump the processor every eight years. <laughs> <They're doing laughs> I was going to say, careful. <laughs> it's a long time. Uh, the MacBook Air seems a lot more complicated. So, in John Gruber. You can just read his brain breaking in real time on Daring Fireball right now as he tries to piece it together. My brain is also broken. I don't, I don't know why this seems so complicated to everyone. So the, here's the basic problem. Okay. Dieter, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm standing by to correct you. The, the, the report is it'll <laughs> be sure the you same. You don't want Dieter just go ahead. Dieter, go ahead. <laughs> wait, wait, let's do it this way. I'll just help you. <laughs> The report is that there's going to be a new MacBook Air replacement that will have uh, – it'll be about the same size. It'll have a 13-inch screen, slightly smaller bezels, and great. That's what everyone's been waiting for. Hooray. But here's the question. We all assumed that when they released the MacBook and then the MacBook Pro, that that was how it was going to go. There was going to be the MacBook, small and thin and whatever, and then there'd be the MacBook Pro, big tanky, not – 
tanky, but bigger, whatever. Um, and then the MacBook Air would eventually just kind of... The way it's turned out, the MacBook is underpowered, and the MacBook Pro is uh, touch-barred. So everyone's <laughs> real unhappy. Um, and so everyone's waiting for them to come out with something else. Because the thing I've been you know, beating the drum about is they don't have a good $1,000 laptop. They don't have a good like mid-range. They know, they'll never do low-end whatever. So if they release this thing... It's, you know, assume it's about the size of the MacBook Air, maybe a little bit thinner, has a better real processor, unlike the MacBook. Um, wh- why does the MacBook exist? To have an ARM or, chip in it next year. That's why it's there. You think so? Yeah. I mean, the problem with the MacBook is it's underpowered, but Intel Intel is underpowered. But why is the Air the one that's bigger and heavier than the MacBook? Because the Air is the one that's going to get a realistic processor in it this year. It's, like, it's I, just, think, I think you... Everyone's brain is breaking because you're overthinking it. The MacBook Air is one of the most popular computers ever ever made. Yes. It had an absolutely golden brand. Joanna Stern, for $500 more, you can get a MacBook Air. I mean, that's just like all she wrote on our website for two years because it was true. And they've tarnished that brand, but they could instantly bring it back with this very simple set of updates. They can move the MacBook to ARM and have that be the tip of that spear. And the MacBook Pro can continue to be whatever it's going to be. Here's what Apple should do. Yeah. They should introduce this thing and just call it the MacBook. And they should be like, and the old MacBook is, you know, the MacBook Little. We're rebranding it. The MacBook Little. What? The MacBook Air. (laughs) Call it the MacBook Air. Like, whatever. Um, No. Look. If you th- just think, go with me on this. The okay. MacBook is a computer with an ARM processor makes sense, right? Yeah. Like, just in terms of what it is, the size it is, what it could be, in terms of what, how Apple wants its consumers to think about the future of computing, right? You buy this thing, it's the jewel, it's a little bit more expensive, but it's the whole future. And it only yeah. runs some subset of our Mac operating system applications. But Stocks. <laughs> and the stocks, <laughs> and, the stocks and it can run some iPad apps over on the side. The yeah. MacBook Pro is for pros. It's got last year's chips in it, but it's still fine. <laughs> uh, A vibrant partnership with AMD. Yeah, that's for pros. It's it's going to be big. The MacBook Air. The thin and light that everybody wants, which is an Intel chip, the full range of stuff, in a reasonable size of the retina display. That makes sense to me in that you've got your pure consumer offering that's this MacBook, which does not have the range of apps because it runs ARM. You've got the yeah. Pro, which does everything, has a discrete GPU. By the way, I can't get mine to turn off and my battery dies in 10 minutes right now. <laughs> Just letting everybody know how that DGPU life is working for me. Um, wow. you got the Pro, which does everything. And then you've got the Air, which is the thin and light, down the middle, golden brand name. I don't know why that seems complicated, but knowing Apple, they will complicate it in some way. Yes. I mean, the MacBook, the MacBook Air launched when you had a plastic, chunky MacBook mm-hmm. and a heavy, powerful MacBook Pro, probably with a disk drive. Uh, yeah. yeah, actually with a disk drive. So the plastic ones had a disk drive, too. That's also true. So what they need to do to differentiate is they take the existing MacBook, they wrap it in plastic, they add a disk drive, and they charge $600 for it, and everything is solved. I don't know who I saw on Twitter today, but there was some Mac developer who loaded up uh, like the first iBook, like the tangerine orange one that looked like a toilet seat, mm-hmm. uh, and he had Xcode open on it in like 10.3, 
and it just looks like, like everything about it looked like a cartoon. Mm-hmm. And I literally thought, like instinctively thought, that was a brighter time in America. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I was young. The operating systems were bright. There are colors everywhere. The buttons were pulsing. The computers were neon orange. It was. I missed wild. that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's gone now. Now we just want dark modes and everything. Yeah, that's where we're. Bring at. back, bring back Zubas is what you're saying. Oh God, no, it was post Zub. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to talk about this anymore. All right, uh, one more thing, real fast. Uh, Tom Warren has been doggedly pursuing these leaks. Microsoft creating a new subscription service for Xbox that bundles a console, Xbox Live, Xbox Game Pass. It looks like twenty five bucks a month for the Xbox One S. Uh, and like 35 for the 1X. This yeah. is, on its face, a bad deal. If you just bought all that stuff on its own, it would be cheaper. And yet, I'm like, this is going to make me buy a 1X. I don't know why. why. I don't know why. I, I cannot explain it. But I've, been, I've had a 1X in a shopping cart on Microsoft's site, on Amazon, and I haven't been able to pull the trigger. Now you want to owe Microsoft money for two years. I don't well, get it. A, can't you just like return it? When you, if you want if you're done with it after a year I don't know well, like I, maybe not I have no idea how this works I just know that like well, the idea that I'm gonna pay thirty bucks a month or thirty five bucks a month it's it's weird right it's that's breaking my brain to you. yeah because I would never well, buy Microsoft Game Pass is, otherwise ever yeah Microsoft has wanted to they've been talking in vague terms about trying to get like the console cycle a little bit more like the phone cycle, you know, so your apps will be compatible from generation to generation of console. They can release them more often. And so also copying the phone model of like, get a, just get a subscription to your phone, put it on some weird payment plan makes perfect sense for the way that they're thinking about the console market. Also, if you're like a kid, it's a lot easier to get 30 bucks a month, like weasel your way into 35 bucks a month. And <laughs> yeah. you can just like go out. It's, just good, like, like, it's good practice for being in debt to large companies <laughs> later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You just yeah, take ca- a summer job Xbox, being an Instagram influencer. Practice. It's great. <laughs> All right, Paul, every week. We, you have like two minutes. Every week. It's called Cold Ears, Warm Heart. Can't lose. Can't lose. <laughs> HP has made a new patented method for cooling your ears with headphones. It's a thermoelectric magnets. Wow. So the new yeah. Omen Mind Frame headset. They're also cloth, which is nice, USB powered. I just hate having hot ears. Yeah. But I also like- How do magnets cool your ears? Thermoelectrically. <laughs> all right, I want to wear these all the time. I, I get this thing where like m- one of my ears will just like suddenly like get really hot and turn super red, and I don't know why. And just the idea of just having cold ears is like I, that makes that you don't want cold feet, but you do want cold ears. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Dieter gets it. How much does that cost? Two hundred bucks. Mm. Also, it. not portable because it's used to be powered. <laughs> you get a battery. Come on, <laughs> it's the future. Okay, that's it. I want you to look at a story on the site. Just want to plug one more thing. Andrew Hawkins went to Waymo's self-driving big large-scale test. Exclusive. Checked out how they're managing a fleet of self-driving taxis, which are, to be fair, Chrysler Pacifica minivans. (laughs) (laughs) But they're cool. So, like, read that. It's a great story about a problem that I don't think we think about with self-driving, which is, like, literally who will change the oil in these cars. So check that out on the site. It's great. Home of the Future's going. Future Music's going. We didn't talk about politics this week, but I promise you they are still happening. And Casey Newton is covering them all on the interface. Check that out at theverge.com slash interface. That's a newsletter you can get every day. You can also follow us on all the social media platforms of your choice. We're usually at Verge. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. 
You can also follow us. I'm at Reckless on Twitter, Paul's Future Paul, Dieter's Backlon. You can also listen to more from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Check out Rico Decode with Kara Swisher and Rico Media with Peter Kafka. This episode of Vertcast brought to you by Audi e-tron. Despite all of its technology, there's a lot the Audi e-tron doesn't offer. For example, it has no tailpipe emissions and no need to fill up at the gas station. You just plug it in home. The Quattro all-wheel drive system offers no reason not to tackle roads in almost any weather. And with long-range capabilities and high-speed charging, e-tron is a new way to think about electric mobility, which makes sense. It's the first fully electric vehicle from Audi. E-tron was built to defy the elements and upend the conventional wisdom. So in truth, it isn't really lacking anything. After all, it isn't just an electric car, it's electric Audi. Etron is here in the future of electric. Visit AudiUSA.com slash Etron to learn more and stay informed. That's it. Rock and roll. Paul. Promo code. <laughs>